disruption, I think, is something that people really do need to embrace in this day and age. And I'm finding that I'm having a lot of disruptive conversations with leaders in organizations now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and people realizing that there's a lot of their staff that were highly impacted but don't know what to do about it because they haven't had conversations on race and racism before in the workplace. And so there's a little bit of a confusion around if I bring it up now, am I checkboxing? Am I doing it right? Uh, should I do it? Should I just be silent? Should I bring someone to come and talk to people? And so it's a, it's a really interesting space, I think, that a lot of leaders are going through right now. And I'm happy to help them navigate um, that space for sure. Just because it's how it went does not mean it's how it still needs to go. What happened in the past, how we did things in the past, is not what we need now, yet they persist. Why? It lives in the antiquated notion of that's how we've always done it. On this episode of The Just Life, I speak with Joanne Kenya Baker from Shades of Humanity. She was raised in Kenya. She only began identifying as a black woman, though, by measure of the box she was put in when she immigrated to Canada, not before. Just let that sink in for a moment. A disappointing part of the struggle of many who immigrate here. This podcast will be navigating through tough, uncomfortable, and necessary topics around racism and equity in the workplace, the pervasiveness of white supremacy, and the legacy beliefs that continue to influence us without our knowing or our approval. These are challenging topics, rich in history and with deep trauma at its roots. It is the bravery of those like Joanne and leaders like her that we must rally behind and intently listen to with empathy and with a commitment to see clarity and understanding first and foremost so we can take action with confidence and with certainty as the leaders we are in this emerging future. My story is unique in that um, I started identifying as a, a black woman when I moved to Canada because I had to be put in boxes, right? So I was born and raised in Kenya. Kenya is my home. I identify as someone who's African, currently living in Calgary, Treaty 7, acknowledging that I work, play, and live on this land, Treaty 7, as a settler here. And I'm really committed to working towards reconciliation on this land as an immigrant settler trying to understand how to make it right for the Indigenous people that call this place home. And so, you know, it's, I always really start by anytime I have an engagement, I always have to be very cognizant of the fact that sometimes being a settler, regardless of where you're settling from, has an impact on the land. It has an impact on the stories of the land. And it also um, gives me gives me a platform to be part of the reconciliation movement that's happening now across Canada. So as mentioned, you know, I was born and raised in, in Kenya, and I must say that I, I did come from, I had privilege in terms of, I was, I had access to education. I had access to a lot of the amenities that I know a lot of people living in poverty um, don't have. And I need to acknowledge that because that privilege has also kind of taken me as far as I am right now in life and not many folks have access to that privilege. 
and and I am very grateful, obviously, for for being afforded this privilege because those that went before me really struggled to be able to get that independence that their children could have privilege, right? So my father, who's 83, you know, was in school right in the midst of colonization. My grandfather kind of ushered in, so to speak, quote unquote, um, the colonial settlers in Kenya. So my narrative has been very different from that of my parents and my grandparents and acknowledging that I was born into freedom as well as outside my father's generation, first generation born into freedom, which is very, which is big, big that I didn't have to experience that, but I did vicariously in many ways. Anyways, my middle name is Kenya. Kenya means leader. And I think that kind of segues into our conversation and our connection on how um, we show up in our different workspaces, in our community. The name Kenya is actually literally means a footstep, but symbolically means a leader. So I feel like I had to live up to my name like most people do, just to say, for instance, my younger sister, her name is Kapambi. Kapambi means someone who's who loves cleanliness, and she is basically very, very clean, almost too anal. So it's strange how we all kind of eventually um, live up to our names. Are you living up to your name? Do you know what your name means? If you don't, you should explore it more. You might be surprised by it. In Hebrew, my name means beloved, but that wasn't enough for me. So I explored a little bit more. Here is what I learned about those of us who were named David. So for you Davids out there, this is for you. David is someone who will never let you down. They empower others by simply being themselves. David is wise and kind and gives all that he can to what he believes most. With one look, he knows what's on your heart and how to give you what you need to feel supported and loved. David will give all of himself to his passions and goals. He gives so much of himself to others, I hope he remembers to give to himself too. David's very presence grounds everyone around him and reminds them of why they're here. And I, I, I walked into this uh, world as a leader and I've shown up as a leader ever since I was a child. I was what we called a prefect in our education system, which was modeled around the British education system, which I think the equivalent here in Canada would probably be like a class leader or a school leader. And so um, I got into that. I got into leadership in high school. I ran for student government and when I did my undergrad and I got in as well. And so I feel like that is something that I very naturally stepped into and I really enjoyed because I was able to use my voice in change making in community. And I still do to this day. And so that's kind of where my journey began uh, to answer that question. And really around my defining moments were when I was able to step out of what I considered as privilege and moving to Canada where I was basically right at the the bottom of the, I want to say the food chain, so to speak, as a racialized individual and what that meant for me, experiencing racism for the first time as an adult was very different. And that really pushed me to getting to understand 
the dynamics of why community is set up the way it's set up and how I could use my experiences to kind of help and guide and coach and, and get people to realize what equity really means. And this is how I started my company, Shades of Humanity Consulting. A space where people can have dialogue, where people can have conversations on what equity means and how they could bring equity to their organizations. It's so interesting, right? When, when you look at our journeys and how they've manifested into the roles that we assume and the directions that we take. And sometimes, certainly for me, it's been a, a feeling of by accident, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's never really by accident. It's just a, a level of awareness or not in the moments of, of what's going on. And this, this intuitive pull, if you will, towards something that is mm -hmm. meaningful and worthwhile in our lives. And, yes. uh, and you and yeah. paint the picture uh, quite eloquently and you have the name to really own and embrace and understand, appreciate what it takes to actually be leader and bring in your expertise and understanding of what it takes to be leader when you are dealing with marginalized individuals, uh, when you're dealing with racism mm -hmm. and, and you're dealing with issues of color and and position and place, you know, like know your place. It was never appropriate. It was never effective. It was a, uh, a method of control. And so I, it'll be really cool to start to pull this apart and, um, and get you to, to really talk about what it is that you've done inside of enabling others to begin the process of understanding their place as leaders in a very quickly changing arena. So, so share a little bit about um, what you've seen is going on and then we'll, we'll kind of guide through it as we go. Before I talk about that, I'll talk about how my journey has kind of led me to the space prior to moving, moving to Canada and just how human rights issues are issues all over the world and they look different wherever we are and wherever we go. The one factor is that people on the margins or people who are equity seeking will always need to have the bare minimum of having their voices heard. Okay. So before I moved here, I used to work for not-for-profit organizations and for the United Nations in refugee camps. Okay. So I worked in 13 different refugee camps across Africa helping um, basically folks that were seeking refuge, folks that were declared refugees, but extremely um, underprivileged in many ways, um, faced a tremendous amount of losses. And also people who are really struggling with the idea of having to be in a new country with a new language, without family, uh, their family, some of them witnessed their families being murdered in front of them as children. And that impacted me in a way that um, it, it gave me a sense of the importance of knowing people's stories and the importance and the power of listening to their stories in the hopes that I could use my voice or my privilege in that instance as a worker for the United Nations in helping some of these kids. I mostly worked with kids who were victims of war, rape, torture, trauma, and I also worked with women as well who had faced the same. 
And I found too that the voices of the women and the voices of the children were the least heard, right? Patriarchy is a universal thing, right? So the head of the household, quote unquote, in most situations was the man. And a lot of the stories and viewpoints were given from the perspective of the man. I want you to imagine for a moment living in a world without language. That at no point did you use words to describe, communicate, or interact with the world around you or with yourself. That includes the voices in your head. Those things you do without much consideration would not be possible without the power of language. How we engage with each other, how we communicate our needs, wants, and desires. It's ironic because right now I am describing this to you using language. Like a fish in water, we are immersed in language. It is all around us. That water can nourish or that water can drown. Growing up, I was raised under a Christian faith. The teachings of the Bible were passed on to me. As they were taught and as I experienced them by my elders, they imprinted on me beliefs and ways of being. But language, without a true understanding of its meaning and reasoning, language, when it lacks experience, empathy, and context, is dangerous. What do you hear when I say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? Or, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Or how about, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Or, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. These words are triggering, no doubt. They've left a impact on me as a husband, as a father of a daughter. As a young boy, and a young man growing up reading these, I understand full well how this could easily be taken, taken to the extreme, ignoring, not understanding the balance that must be honored and equally understood and appreciated. It is no surprise then that our women and children experience what they do then, is it? Whether you find these triggering or not, it doesn't matter. I only say this because we all have a responsibility to the words we use and how we use them. How are you using your words? They are central to the human soul. They create our worlds. They build our realities. They give meaning to our lives. They enable us to connect to each other in good ways and in bad. And I, I took liberty to kind of use my work to also just give voice, give space for the voices of the women and the children. And the narratives were always different, right? Because people saw things from a very different perspective. Kids, kids would look at things in terms of the losses that they face and the things that they wish they had. And parents would look at things from the perspective about, I wish I could do this and that for my children. So very rich perspectives. 
Now I noticed too that years later, I needed space for my voice. I needed to kind of articulate how I was really struggling with going into a grocery store and having someone follow me for the mere fact that I'm a black person, right? Um, or not having my voice heard in meetings, being a leader of teams and not having people respect me because I was the only black woman on the team and a leader, right? It took me back to the importance of having your voice heard, being seen as a person, being seen as a human being. And I actually took a lot of that stuff that happened to me quite positively and I, and I spun it into this idea of conversation, being open to having conversation and, and understanding that people won't always want to hear what you have to say, but it is very important that they give you the space to say it. Shades of Humanity, my company, is basically founded on the principles that, you know, all human beings, we're all like brush strokes in a picture. And we have different shades in terms of how we present. We have different shades in our lived experiences, in our ethnocultural and ethnoracial identity, in our age, in our um, gender, in our sexuality, right? The intersections of life, as it were, are represented in the different shades of humanity. I'm, I'm really present to this story of, of the struggle, a very real struggle and, and, and the aspirational triumph, right? Like the working towards actually achieving, dealing, going into battle and, and battling with, with that which keeps continuing to oppose us and, and having some wins there, how that went for you, dealing with in the face of not being heard, not being seen, not being validated as and pushing through and doing something anyways. It really takes something to do that. It does, it does. And um, it's very easy to get burnt out from conversations with people and burnt out from being treated in a certain way, right? I'll give you a very clear example. And I love that your uh, platform is about leadership because I can tell you that I, I'm still on the journey of learning about what great leadership should look like but i can sure as hell tell you i know what horrible leadership is <laughs> i i think i'm quite grounded in the ideas of the leadership that i've experienced that i never want to be every day is a learning experience for me for example i did um and i see that you are connected to the beltline and i was a social worker in the beltline district for quite a bit of time and i really enjoyed working as a leader in that community I, I developed a new style of leadership when I was a community social worker in the Beltline, um, taking care of certain groups that were formed, community-based groups in the Beltline, and I would kind of create space for these groups to come together and, and get together and talk about what shared leadership is. The leaders that I found who taught me the most were a bunch of I think at the time there were 14 year old kids in high school who were so organized and really just changed what I perceive as leadership, right? David, when we think of leadership, we think of, um, think about the, the, you know, the people on the podiums who are like riling up the crowds, the folks who write books and nobody ever really talks about the high school kids who started a bake sale and made money for their community. Nobody talks about 
kids who started who painted a mural just based on the fact that they didn't want to be at risk and needed something to do in the community they got together and made some beautiful art the reason why i mention all these things is because i find that my leadership journey has been shaped by so many different players that you would find would be the most unsuspecting people right i still do have a lot of think tanks and thought leaders that i look up to but it's the everyday leaders that we typically wouldn't acknowledge that have really shaped who i am like my grandfather who died at 115 and he was extremely healthy fit completely sound mind and he would just give these huge nuggets of advice in the most gentle way and if there is something that i will continue to carry along with me on my journey it's just how he was able to impart knowledge and with gentleness and kindness as he did and that to me is one of my number one leaders as well there's so many different elements of community and society that shape who we are as leaders now onto the bad leaders that have really pushed me to to where i need to be and why the issue of race and racism has come really up in my mind lately um well i should say the past couple of years as i've been forming my my strategy and my business um unconscious bias is something we don't always talk about but we need to but the more we address issues of unconscious bias the uh the less we will have the explicit bias that comes from it in how we address people and how we connect and relate to people i once had a boss david who would and mind you i am an educated woman i speak multiple languages i think i understand a lot of things in the field that i've been educated in and i say that with utmost humility but for context i had a i had a i wouldn't even call her a leader but she was a manager who would say things like do you understand me pointing to her head as i'm doing right now in a meeting <laughs> and i'd be like yes i do and super humiliated at that point and then she would say okay could you repeat everything that i said i want to be sure that you got my directions right and i'm i'm looking around and and feeling extremely humiliated by that and i have to regurgitate what she just said and it really got me thinking why why would she tell me that like what is it about me i believe that i presented in a way that i understand concepts which took me to the idea of what is her experience with black people not that it's a uh, that absolutely has no meaning to anything but beyond that what is her unconscious bias about people of color because we soon found out that she has a specific way of treating white folks and a very specific way of treating people of color and we all fell in that first category where there was a lot of doubt there was questioning there was like over marking our work so to speak and that was really discouraging right but i took that as a lesson on how to talk about implicit bias and and even just the way we have our microaggressions in conversations to leaders now in my business and giving examples of how there's certain things that you cannot tell people 
And so I use, I use experiences like that. And when I'm speaking in organizations, I'm speaking from a point of, you're bringing me in here to kind of lay the land. I can give you the tools, but you're the one to, who needs to go to the garden to do all the fixing. Because we've found that doing a training, an unconscious bias training, or a diversity and inclusion training is not enough. It's never enough. It's a checkbox. The unconscious bias. For those of you who are not 100% sure what it is, these are the prejudices we have that are in favor of or are against one thing, person, or group. The scale is typically unbalanced and to an extreme of some sort. Whether it's stereotypes about certain people or beliefs about various social and identity groups, these are the ways in which we unconsciously categorize our social worlds. They are passed down from generation to generation, and you might actually think, like I have, that this belief or way of thinking is the norm, that everyone else around me thinks this way. And you would be wrong. They are not. And so the opportunity for us now is to distinguish what our biases are, sort and remove the ones that limit our acceptance of others, create new definitions and belief systems to take their place. So when an organization calls me in, it's one of two things. They're striking when the iron is hot or they're striking while the iron's not hot. And so when the iron's hot, it's not always a good thing because either A, there is a lawsuit happening in an organization and people just want to do a bit of a CYA or there is a whistleblower report that has come out, or there's maybe just uh, someone's called them out on social media and they just wanna make things right. And there is a, there's nothing wrong with, with engaging with a consultant in that instance, but you really do need to be very intentional about what you're going to do with the process once it's done. It is an ongoing process. And so when I have situations like that, I found that with checkbox diversity work, it could go really wrong in so many ways. The first being the appearance of fragility in organizations, right? Now, it is no secret that the higher you go in an organization, the whiter it becomes. And the whiter the top of the organization is with the lack of awareness of what that represents then the higher the levels of fragility that would show up when confronted with new information and an example of that is doing a racial equity audit in the organization and i do what is called some sort of like a, a caucus conversations where i have conversations with frontline staff who are usually racialized and then i have conversations with leaders and I'm telling you nine out of 10 times when I have conversations with staff that are particularly racialized and are working in an organization that does not have a strategy for achieving racial equity or supporting individuals in the organization that are racialized, a lot of pain and trauma and information comes out of these frontline groups around how they don't feel like they're being treated right. Okay, and this is usually in a non-unionized situation. I must point that out because that has a different dynamic. 
And then I go on to the leaders and the leaders are like, but we treat everyone the same. But we have an anti-bullying policy and we have, um, we have reporting structures that are usually within HR. Diversity, equity, and inclusion does not always have a natural fit in human resources because human resources um, have a very different mandate about how they do the work. And so that doesn't always work out in organizations. So I've had situations where the staff have come out in vulnerability, shared what the issues are, presenting this to the leaders and the leaders feel like they're being attacked and will then end the process. So we've basically done open heart surgery to one group and we just, time's up, your heart's on the table. I'm sorry, we can't continue to do this because it's been shut down. Now, what has worked is the opposite. The reaction of being called out to address the elephant in the room, it's a hard one to stick with and listen to, let alone accept. As human beings, we are offended easily at the thought of it. And inside of that offensive behavior, leadership is not in a position to actually listen to what's actually been said. It's become, is a very personal attack, which is ironic given what the issue is that is being brought up, not personal. In order to do the necessary work to improve on things, leadership has to check in and evaluate their own state of being if they're to be effective? Well, for one, it's acknowledging that this is not personal, right? Systems are set up for the benefit of the privileged. And so the one thing that I, I, I have in conversation is, and I want to give the examples of racism specifically, but there's a different gamut of intersections that we could talk about that would have the same application. But when talking about race and racism and racial relations, it's really important that organizations start to look at how their structures are really based on the foundations of white supremacy. That's right. She went there. And this moment right here is where you, the listener, get to check your ego at the door, take a different action from your typical reaction and stop taking it as a personal attack. Stay with the conversation. Free yourself of your biases, assumptions, and justifications, and just listen newly. And when I say white supremacy, a lot of people think, you know, Tiki Torch, KKK, the hoods. No, white supremacy is basically the fact um, that there's a couple of principles, and there's an organization actually out in Montreal called COCO that produced a very incredible resource on how to support white supremacy in organizations. And I was quite surprised even as I was learning what white supremacy was, especially in 2020, I felt like white supremacy would show up right next to a picture of someone wearing a MAGA hat. That is an expression of it, but that really isn't how it shows up in organizations. In organizations, it's things around someone with the name Baba Tunde Oliafunde will not get a job, even though Baba Tunde has so much experience, so much education. The fact that Baba Tunde has an immigrant sounding name or a non-white, I should say, sounding name is basically how white supremacy shows up 
just at hiring, right? And I know we could even get into how leaders are now working around blind hiring as an aspect and as what's kind of being called a best practice. But if we could just go to the basics of that in itself prevents someone from getting into the door. White supremacy is around urgency, a sense of urgency, right? That is very deeply rooted in how white supremacy shows up in organizations. Perfectionism, bigger is better, more is better, right? These are just everyday things, aren't they? But deeply rooted in supremacy. And so when I get the pushback, it's because there isn't an understanding that this is not personal, this is systemic. This brings me back to the systemic issues with my own industry of marketing. I speak about it often, but rarely in public. I couldn't place the discomfort in the early days, but as I explored further, I started to understand just how pervasive and deep it went. They go hand in hand with the systemic issues Joanne speaks to, and dare I say is what lives at its source. Marketing's origins of coercion, persuasion through filters and censorship are inspired by the propaganda machines that fueled our world wars. It consciously and intelligently manipulates habits and opinions that mold our minds, form our tastes, or tell us what to think. It was, is, highly effective. It could make citizens believe their home country was winning the war even when it wasn't. It could bend the minds into thinking enemies were less than human. Just look at the machinations led by Goebbels and the Nazi party. This isn't history, though. This is right now. More intelligent, leveraging more insight and causing even more trouble. The equalizing force, however, is that we all have access to the tools and platforms they do. And when I talk about the companies that I've seen that being a success story is they just put it, put it down and say, you know what, we don't know what we don't know. We are coming from a place of privilege and we want to understand better. And I love being in that space because there's no attacks. No one's taking anything personal. It's really all about how can we move the needle on equity in our organizations, right? Um, and even just acknowledging that we each and everyone has their own bias, right? I really encourage people to take the Harvard Implicit Association test to test their biases because it's formulated in a way that you go in thinking, oh, I'm totally unbiased. And then you do the test and like, I was really humbled when I did one of the tests. I've done multiple ones, but I did this one that says I have a bias towards the aging population. And I was stunned because I'm like, I love old people, right? And even just the way I said that can already talk about how I'm trying to like excuse myself from a bias, <laughs> right? And that, that came out as a big thing too with the leaders that wanted to understand moving away from the implicit and explicit expressions of bias. We just want to do better because when we know better, we do better versus the other group of leaders that are like, just fix it, right? Fix all the, fix all the problem people and we can just check box that we've done this. Yeah. Fun times. 
you know what? It is fun times. And here's why. It's gone on this way for so long. And it has uh, revealed the fractures and the breaks and the unworkability of it. And people like yourself get to say how it could go now. Full stop, end of story. And those that are willing to listen, willing to drop their biases and truly be open to the what else, the unknowing, unaware, don't know that I don't know things are the ones that will be around later. And that is it, because I believe, and this is the stand that I get to take, humanity is destined for something else. And so we just get to blaze that trail. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. And this being Black History Month, uh, it's been a time of really focusing on blazing trails, really, and, and talking about how it's whereas it's important to acknowledge some of the traumas and the pain that people have gone through it's also really too important to acknowledge some of the trailblazers that have been part of the struggle and maybe not in my or your lifetime definitely not in our lifetime that we'll see that the needle has moved on equity but we sure as hell are playing a part in it right now by having this conversation and there are many who are having this conversation more often, yeah. which is the thing that I see as the needle really moving, right? And we actually don't know what the future is going to look like uh, or, or how it's going to unravel. I have conversations about the future all the time. It's part of the work that I do is guide people through the process of creating a compelling future, a, a future of alignment and possibility, right? If there was no limitations, what would it look like? Uh, so I'm always uh, inside of a an envisioned future. As a result, I see and I hear the aspirations of organizations and people that they'd like to see happen in the future. The magic of doing this kind of work is that it actually, when you declare it, it is lived now. And we have no idea what that future is going to look like as a result, but we can certainly speculate and there's power there, most definitely power there to keep us going. Absolutely. Right? And it takes being okay with getting to an uncomfortable situation right? Uncomfortable conversations. Because again, back to what white supremacy, how it shows up is the right to comfort. Now, providing the right to comfort means that I don't want you to get into uncomfortable spaces. So we won't even go there, or we will gloss over it. Or you coming to tell me, you know what, Joanne, this is really uncomfortable. I don't think we could do this. And so you're still continuing to perpetuate the supremacy mentality by not wanting to be uncomfortable but if we get together and say okay you know what I probably will struggle to hear it but let's do it then we know we are definitely starting to move that needle yeah oh man that is so great what what a great simple measure of seeing where you're at in the progress of it are you comfortable or not is a really easy way to evaluate whether you're making the progress in the areas that really will make the difference for the future or not. Maintain status quo, maintain our predictable habits and the things that, uh, that keep us in our lane 
or venture forward into the unfamiliar. I was on a podcast not too long ago, and um, one of the things that I distinguish with my kids is the is the difference between courage and bravery. Um, one being, you, you do need to have courage to uh, to take certain actions, but in a lot of ways, courage doesn't necessarily mean that there is a concern for life. It means that you're doing something that you're scared about for whatever reason, you're still safe in, in many ways. And I get there's a spectrum. And, and on the other side of that spectrum, there lives bravery. Bravery distinctly defined as taking an action, knowing that, that if you don't, something really bad is going to happen. And if you don't take that action, that's the reality of it. We need to embrace more bravery than courage in this case, right? To go to the extreme, to take an action that the output could, you don't even know what the output's going to be. And it could be really, really scary. And you don't know what it is. And you need to do it. And you need to do it. I'm having a conversation. It's a follow-up conversation with a group of First Nations uh, organizations and, and representatives about housing crisis in Alberta. And, and I'm facilitating a conversation. And the, the story that I have is one of like, you, you are the white man, privileged white man facilitating a conversation. And who are you to facilitate said conversation? And this is the ongoing grapple I feel with those who, and you, you pointed to it earlier, is it my place to give voice to this or, or should I let somebody else give voice to this? And um, I am a one to give voice to this. I'm not the one to give voice to this. And if I come at it from a place of a real desire to understand and seek clarity, right, then we can only make a difference in it because that is my intention. It is not to bring answers. I have no answers, but I have tools and, and approaches and, and ways of thinking that could reveal new answers and new directions. And, and who am I, how dare you to not bring that to the table? Yes. And I have two things to say about that. So what you said before about courage and bravery, and I feel like the in between or the, uh, the bridge is clarity, right? So Brene Brown, who does Brene talks about courage quite a bit and bravery as well in her books she says that clear is kind right and unclear is unkind and even just having that distinction of clarity when talking about courage and being brave um, it really just merges that whole idea of yeah on one hand like you said there's this situation but on the other hand we need to really apply that situation Second thing you talked about, um, who, who am I? I really just love that question, who am I? Privilege is not always a bad thing. I find too that the word privilege has gotten so much bad press that it, it also really just erupts the sense of guilt and questioning. But going back to the who am I question, who am I? I am a person with privilege and can do something with this privilege to benefit those that are not, right? And so using your voice as a white male in this space, there is a space for that too. There is a role for white people to play in talking about equity because Robin DiAngelo, who I personally am a fan of, I know that 
not everybody's a fan of her work, especially around white fragility. But she talks about how white people need to have this conversation about racial equity. White people need to lead these conversations in white spaces, right? For several reasons. Clearly, it hasn't worked when people of color are always talking about their pain. If anything, it re-traumatizes us quite a bit to have to keep reliving everything so that white people can understand what racial equity should look like. But when I have an ally or an accomplice in this situation, someone that I, and I do that sometimes with consultants, I will work with a white consultant when I'm working with a predominantly white group of leaders, because sadly, there's a perspective there that is seen that I don't necessarily. And so understanding that there's a space for that and not that white folks are necessarily leaders in these conversations, but participants in the conversations and brokers, so to speak, I have seen a lot of movement in that area. You know, there's a distinct difference there, what you, and it's so subtle, right? We are not leading, we are participants. There is a co-creation, in fact, that is going on. And, and I believe that is uh, actually the evolution of leadership mm -hmm. in our emerging future. It's not like, hey, listen to me, I know all the answers and pay attention over here. Yeah. It is coming from a, a place of a beginner's mind and an openness and an uh, and an embracing of the new in a co-creative capacity where real innovation lives anyways. It, it, it's, it's tested itself and proven itself all over the place, right? You, yes. you can't innovate with just one train of thought. It's impossible. Absolutely. Right? So we get to co-create. That's exciting for me. Like when I think about it, what gets created when, uh, when there's more of us involved. Absolutely. And the whole idea of leadership, I think a lot of people see leadership as being versus doing, right? And if we look at leadership as something that we do versus something that we are being, <laughs> we start to see that it's in everyone. We all have a role to play in developing what our future is going to look like. We're not just leaving it for some. We all have a role to play in that. And I think of my cultural perspectives around leadership and what that looks like. And this is why it's hard to answer some Eurocentric or Western type questions around leadership, because it's always been modeled around a hierarchy. It's always being modeled around reporting to someone. Whereas if you look at also the indigenous ways of knowing, in various African cultural ways of knowing, yes, there is usually a council of elders, but leadership is very much developed in a circular way versus in a top-down kind of way, right? And, and an example that I talk about, I talk about with leaders is just, and this is this was developed by my friend at CommunityWise, who is a racial equity um, strategist. And this particular model I'm finding is starting to really work in organizations where we talk about bringing equity in organizations. Typically, we think about a ladder where we want the people at the top to kind of meet the people at the bottom in the middle. So we want to promote, you know, people at the bottom who are usually racialized and gender minorities. And then we have the people at the top who are usually mainstream culture, usually men, right? And we're hoping that people will come down and these folks will come up. But at the end of it, no one's really making it past 
the middle, right? And we really need to move away from that thinking and start using kind of like the indigenous ways as an example of let's get together and sit around in a circle and talk about how we can start to make these changes, how there's leadership in everyone and we all have a role to play in our future development. So how can we get that going without having to use all these structures from the top down and the bottom up? And something that I would want people to know really about this specifically around equity work, um, I think it's really important for people to know that it's okay if you don't know and it's okay if you're really confused about the work. It is also okay to just acknowledge that you're stuck, right? Because when I do this work, I really do come from a place of empathy and I don't shame organizations that are not quote unquote getting it right. But I also really encourage them to know that there'll be lots of mistakes on the way that are going to be made, but be open to learning from these mistakes. Be open to just saying that I need help and I really don't know what to do. I find that the greatest leaders, the people that I look up to, have really showed up from a place of vulnerability. And back to the courage thing, vulnerability is courage, right? And so moving from being vulnerable to courage and then having that the braveness to do it, I think is such a perfect, um, I shouldn't say perfect, but it's a really good way to transition into actual meaningful change. And so just know that it's okay not to know anything. It's okay to not know, but it's not okay to not want to do something about it. I think a lot of people are afraid of the call out and the cancel culture that exists and that prevents people from doing things. But I really just want to call people in, call people into this conversation because I am finding that calling you out is not doing anything. I want to call you in and we can sit in that discomfort and have that conversation. It's really, really powerful. When we know better, we do better. So let's call each other in versus calling each other out. The energies are so different. One has a true authentic embrace and the other comes from judgment, morality and ridicule. Instead, accept the vulnerability needed to move into courage that allows you to step into bravery and has you taking action and keep taking action. Being okay not knowing what the outcome will be and doing it anyways. That's where the magic lives. That's where progress lives. The right leadership changes everything. And for our next generation of game changers striving to achieve what is yet to be achieved, you must be willing to do what has never been done. So make ripples, lead the charge, create cool shit that shows others the way to be braver, brighter, and better than we were yesterday. Personally, you owe it to yourself. The more we come together more intentionally to support one another, the sooner we'll all find ourselves not just living, but contributing to the creation of the vibrant, connected communities that fuel dreams. It takes a certain leader to make this happen. So who comes to mind that you would like to hear from? Please let me know and I'll see what I can do to make it happen. Thanks so much for listening. Hey,
Coming down. 